0: You are listening to the science and soul of living well where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Ming-Voines, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune into this week's podcast. Before I introduce our topic for today, I wanted to remind you all about the free four-part video series, The Science and Soul of Building Resilience. If you're interested in learning more about the series or gaining access to it, please take a peek at the episode notes where you can learn more. For today, we are going to be talking about family dynamics, dynamics in our families of origin and ways in which we can build more awareness about the habits, tendencies, and patterns we have developed from those early family dynamics so we can move from habit, from autopilot mode, from reactivity to choice, to intention So we are all products of our environments growing up. None of us is immune to the effects of these early family influences. And many of the patterns we develop are a way of surviving of being successful in these family systems. These patterns are ways that we get important needs met. And sometimes these patterns continue after we are outside of that family system or more separate from that family system in adulthood. And in many ways, these patterns can still continue to serve us. And in some ways, they may not. They may be harmful. And so it's important for us to do the work of reflecting on these patterns that persist and to identify what are the elements that are helpful that we want to hold on to and what are the elements that are harmful. So today we'll begin by talking about different dynamics and values and beliefs in our families of origin and how those aspects of our families of origin can contribute to our development of certain patterns or tendencies that help us survive those systems but can cause problems in our lives later on in various life domains like in relationships, in terms of our sense of self, in terms of how we respond to or think about or even value emotions. So, specifically, we'll focus on some patterns or tendencies that can emerge from our family of origins style of conflict resolution. Use of criticism, values related to emotions and emotional expression, the level of nurturance or caregiving present in our families of origin. We'll also talk about grief and stress, family secrets, and the amount of crisis or chaos or disorganization that might have been present. And for each of these patterns, we'll highlight important functions or purposes that these patterns or tendencies can serve as well as ways in which they can be unhelpful. I'll also share some ways we can increase our awareness so we can be living from that place of intentional choice rather than acting out of habit based on our conditioning and our prior learning. So for each pattern, I'll share some considerations that could serve as journal prompts or self-reflection questions to help you consider more deeply how these patterns might operate in your life today. So that you can foster some curiosity about the ways in which they do and don't serve. And this level of self-inquiry, I believe, can really support us in beginning to understand what we might want to shift in our lives and how to begin the process or continue the process of letting go of what no longer serves us. Before we begin speaking about the specific kinds of dynamics that exist in our families of origin and the patterns or tendencies that can then develop from those dynamics... I want to take a step back and talk about how these roles develop in the first place because I think it's important to recognize that these patterns exist for a reason and this is a very normative process. You may have heard people use the phrase biopsychosocial theory before with respect to development and biopsychosocial theory is a theory that describes how our development of various behaviors, personality traits, tendencies are affected by a combination of our biology as well as our social environment. So biological influences include our genetic makeup as well as aspects of ourselves that have a biological basis like emotional sensitivity and impulsivity for example social environment includes not just our caregivers and members in our families of origin but also how the larger society treats us it can also involve experiences of life stressors and traumas effects of oppression and discrimination so any kind of psychosocial influence cultural political social gendered based norms and expectations messages about sexuality all of That can contribute to the influences in our social environment. Biopsychosocial theory demonstrates how it is the interaction of us and our environment that leads to the development of certain patterns and tendencies in childhood that can then persist into adulthood. So, in a nutshell, the way we are born into the world our temperament or constitution, so to speak, interacts with our environment in a transactional way. So the way in which we are born into the world might elicit certain responses from the social environment, not always, and we might influence the social environment because of who we are, because of how we're born into the world. And this has a reciprocal or cyclical effect as well in that our social environment influences Us as well. So, for example, if we are praised or shown love and attention when we act in certain ways, often in ways that are consistent with the values of our family system or help support the functioning of the family system in some ways, we are likely to continue those patterns because we learn that these ways that we act help get our human need that we all have for belonging and connection met. The more we act in this way, the more we get that praise and love and attention from our social environment, and so that further solidifies or entrenches that pattern. Now on the flip side, if we act in a certain way that is punished or ridiculed, criticized, judged, ostracized, or ignored even, we are likely to stop acting in that way because stopping that behavior that leads to those negative consequences, again, it's not saying that it's our fault or that we're causing them, but the environment maybe is not capable of a different response, isn't aware of the harm that is caused by that response, but regardless of the reason the social environment is responding to us in that way for that behavior, We are likely to stop engaging in it because that stopping of that behavior or tendency protects us from further hurt and from disconnection from those relationships. So as humans, we are wired for belonging and connection and love, especially in our childhood and adolescence. But of course, it doesn't stop there. It continues. And we also have a need for security. And so we will often do what it takes to get these human needs met even if it comes at a personal cost. We are programmed to survive. We are programmed to help that system function and as I said earlier, none of us is immune from this process because it's a human process. We are social creatures and so When we are affected by our families of origin, when we develop these patterns, and we all do, we all have patterns that exist within us because of those early influences, it is because of our humanity. And because many of these dynamics exist when our brains and nervous systems are really impressionable, they can leave a pretty strong residue. So when we learn how to fit into these systems and find certain ways to survive and function in those systems, that creates a kind of learning, a kind of conditioning. And that can lead us to suppress certain tendencies in ourselves that are a part of our true nature. So as an example, if we're born into the world as very emotionally sensitive beings and our family doesn't support that, flat out criticizes it, or perhaps our family thinks it's helping us manage our emotional sensitivity by saying, oh don't worry, it's okay, which can be hugely invalidating when you feel like something is not okay. It can lead us to suppress those tendencies in ourselves in a way that sends us the message that who we are at our core and what we feel isn't okay, which of course is a very damaging message and can lead to a lot of confusion and disconnection from ourselves. If we think who we are is not okay, we can shut ourselves off from those parts or try to deny them, ignore them in a way that helps us survive our families, but can cause difficulties in identifying our emotions, connecting to our needs and desires and preferences, and feeling a sense of self-confidence and self-assuredness in being who we are. Another flip side of this dynamic is that if our family doesn't know how to or doesn't realize that they aren't supporting aspects of ourselves, it can also cause us to emphasize or exaggerate parts of ourselves in a way that feels false. So, for example, if I am ignored when I express emotion or am told to try to contain that emotion, that may lead me to exaggerate emotion to get my needs met in a way that doesn't feel truly authentic. And again, that is a form of learning and conditioning that a certain level of emotional intensity needs to be expressed in order for it to be taken seriously. So this can play out in a lot of different ways, but the Main take home point that I want to leave you with is that these patterns exist for a reason. They are learned, they are conditioned, they are reinforced, and they do protect us. They help us survive, they get certain needs met. So even if they cause problems down the road, they did serve an important function at a certain point in time. And so it's crucial for us to have self compassion and to recognize that these responses were functional, did serve a purpose at that point in time. And it is then up to us to decide which patterns do we want to try to shift or change and let go of? And what do we want to retain? And we can't make those decisions in a way that is in alignment with our values unless we first become aware of what these patterns are in the first place. So as I transition into sharing some examples of family dynamics and patterns that can emerge from these dynamics, it feels important to highlight that none of these tendencies or patterns that I'll be talking about are mutually exclusive. We can all have elements of some of these patterns in different situations with different people, even patterns that seem somewhat contradictory or opposite. I also want to mention that these are not Categorical patterns, something that you either have or you don't, they're more dimensional. So you could be high or low or moderate in any one particular area. And the final caveat I want to mention is that you may have heard. People in the past talk a bit about attachment style and how our relationships to caregivers in childhood and infancy can serve as an imprint for how we relate to relationships later on in life. And of course, attachment style is relevant to this conversation about family dynamics and patterns that we develop early on that persist into adulthood, but is not something that I'm going to be talking about today. I do just want to highlight, though, that 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 is very relevant to this topic. The first set of family dynamics I want to highlight is related to our family of origin's relationship to conflict resolution. So again, this is dimensional and operates on a continuum. And on one end of the spectrum, we have family systems that tend to be high in conflict. So lots of arguing. Caregivers who may be very strict or reactive when children make mistakes or they perceive the children as not behaving. It can create a kind of system in which members feel as though they are walking on eggshells. There can be a certain level of unpredictability. And of course, there can be verbal and emotional abuse, physical abuse, lots of aggression. And on the other end of that spectrum, we have family systems that have a low level of conflict. So these are systems in which conflict might be avoided. There can be an overemphasis on the importance of agreement with each other, on consensus, not rocking the boat. This can lead to dynamics around feeling as though there's often an elephant in the room that that no one's speaking about. And there can be minimal displays of emotion, both positive or what we often consider as more positive emotions, like joy and appreciation and gratitude, as well as more quote-unquote negative emotions like anger and jealousy and anxiety. There can be a lot of flat affect, maybe minimal displays of affection. So depending on how your family of origin related to conflict, what your family of origin's beliefs were about conflict resolution, there can be certain tendencies that emerge. So one is more of a peacemaker tendency. So as a child, you may have played more of an intermediary kind of role, often trying to translate or explain what different members of the family might have meant when they said certain things things. You might make a lot of attempts to soothe the tension, to help participate in the conflict resolution, maybe even finding ways to validate different people and say, oh I understand where you're coming from, I get your perspective, to facilitate that transition towards resolution or to even soften the conflict. Now, this kind of peacemaker tendency can be really helpful. People who develop these skills in childhood can be very good at seeing and acknowledging multiple perspectives and can be very well equipped at validating those different perspectives and helping people feel very understood. And of course, because of those skills, can be very effective in conflict resolution. At the same time, people who have this more peacemaker tendency can tend to focus on other people at the expense of themselves when it comes to conflict. So minimizing their own needs in the context of conflict for the sake of group cohesion and harmony. They may even have minimized their own needs in the midst of relationships and conflict that they aren't so aware of them. And they can be quick to try to resolve tension and conflict without sufficient emotional experiencing or expression. Which can be a bit of a bypass. So, almost like a skipping over of sharing their perspective, their point of view, expressing their emotions in the service of more expeditiously arriving at resolution. This kind of relationship to conflict depending on where the family falls on this spectrum can also result in more of an argumentative tendency so perhaps if you grow up in a high conflict family system for instance you are conditioned to be more high conflict so you have a tendency to participate in a high conflict resolution style that has been modeled to you. And so you replicate that to some degree, perhaps you're very quick to react highly reactive. Perhaps it takes you some time to cool off and come down to a more baseline level of emotion Once you've been activated because it has been modeled to you that a high state of conflict is normative is effective is even worked towards when it comes to conflict resolution. So that can be helpful in the sense that it can empower people to feel emboldened, to challenge the status quo, to feel confident in playing the devil's advocate, to disrupt and dismantle certain systems or rules that people don't agree with. It can lead to a certain level of of questioning that can result in change. And at the same time, this pattern can be harmful in the sense that sometimes we can fall into a trap of challenging just for the sake of challenging, even if we're not really truly invested in that point of view, because that act of challenging is a place of comfort. It helps us feel in control. Perhaps when things are tense, we, we tend to respond with a lot of defensiveness, or more of an interrogative stance, like we're interrogating someone, rather than a stance of curiosity. Because again, these behaviors were modeled to us, and this was how we functioned in this high conflict family system. This of course, when we respond with more defensiveness and reactivity and less curiosity, can perpetuate conflict in our relationships and elicit defensiveness in others. and when we have this sort of stance towards conflict resolution that's more argumentative, argumentative, that can get in the way of vulnerability and the kind of vulnerability in conflict that can lead to connection. So conflict doesn't always need to lead to distancing and disconnection. It can be an opportunity for connection and relationships, but that can be hard to do if we are putting up defenses rather than showing vulnerability. So some questions to consider to identify where you may fall on this spectrum when it comes to conflict resolution is to consider how comfortable are you with conflict and how do you tend to approach conflict? Do you tend to avoid or withdraw from it? Do you notice yourself seeking it out? Do you notice yourself finding more yourself, finding more comfort in conflict? And how do you tend to respond to conflict when it arises? Do you notice defensiveness and emotional reactivity? Do you notice a quickness towards a devil's advocate kind of approach? Or do you try to rush in and save the situation? And how easily able do you feel your Or how easy is it for you to balance recognizing and validating your perspective with someone else's? How able are you to hold space for multiple perspectives simultaneously? Or do you feel yourself compelled towards needing to create a hierarchy in which someone is right and someone is wrong? Someone needs to win as opposed to there being legitimacy and value and a kernel of truth to everyone's perspective. In the midst of conflict, how easy is it for you to demonstrate vulnerability? To own and communicate the truth of how you feel, not just a spectrum of emotions, but also a certain level of intensity of emotion. And how do you tend to express your opinion in conflict in terms of timing? At what point do you rush in to make your opinion known first? Do you Hold back and wait for others to speak first. How intensively do you communicate your opinion in conflict and how do you express it? Do you interrupt? Do you talk over others? Do you use a lot of emotion? Do you use a lot of physical gestures? Do you tend to be more quiet? Do you doubt yourself when someone expresses their opinion in a way that is different from your own? Are you able to stay sturdy and stable in your opinion even when there is a difference of opinion in the midst of conflict? I think all of these questions are useful to consider in thinking about our current responses and relationships to conflict resolutions and ways in which they may have very early roots. Depending on the level of conflict in our family systems, we may also have a tendency to fit in, follow rules, have high people-pleasing tendencies in order to minimize conflict. So this is of course helpful in the sense that it can help us get along with others. It can lead to lots of flexibility, more of a go with the flow. We can be easygoing and adaptable and and well-liked. And the flip side is that When we have more of this people-pleasing tendency, we often don't really spend time investing and thinking about what we want, which of course makes it difficult to know what we want. We can tend to avoid conflict or not formulate or express our opinions in order to avoid that conflict. We may wait to see what other people say before we participate. We may be highly influenced by other people. We may over-apologize. We may give a lot of caveats to our language. We may go with the flow at the expense of what we really want. We may disconnect from our own needs or forgo them and really lose our sense of self and who we are and what we believe in. And many people describe a sense of being a chameleon. So feeling like we can change and adapt to who we are in different circumstances in order to be well-liked. So this kind of tendency can be an internalization of this message that our worth and our value resides in our ability to get along with others. That unless we are agreeable, unless we go with the flow, we won't be loved or well-liked. And so when we are that adaptable, when we have that chameleon-like tendency in different circumstances that can really result in a lack of a stable sense of self and not really knowing who we are. So some questions to consider to see how much this might play out in your own life is how hard is it for you to voice a difference of opinion? How concerned are you with being liked by others? And are there tendencies that you notice within yourself to change your opinion hold back in expressing your opinion in the service of being liked by others do you have a strong sense of who you are a strong set of identities do you feel that that sense of who you are is something that remains stable across various contexts and in different relationships and with different circumstances Do you find that you are consistently changing your patterns? Do you find it difficult to make decisions? Is it hard for you to know what you want? Do you have a tendency to apologize? To soften your opinion? Or to backtrack easily in the midst of conflict when you are met with resistance? Or when someone pushes back against your opinion? And is it your first reaction to to yes or to agree or to say no or disagree without really thinking that through? Is there some kind of habit or reactive response that you tend towards? The next dynamic I want to lift up is related to family systems in which there was a high level of criticism. So many of us who have grown up in these kinds of family systems have internalized this message that criticism makes us stronger it helps us grow or that criticism is a way of showing love and is a way of getting your needs met this is how you get people to do things by criticizing them it can also lead to a lot of guilt and shame in response to mistakes so we internalize that level of criticism and turn it inward in going forward in our lives family systems that have high levels of criticism can vary in terms of the type of criticism that exists and the way it gets delivered. So it could be name-calling, disparagement, humiliation, contempt, there can be emotional abuse, there can be bullying, there can be manipulation, and there can also be criticism that isn't really intended in a way to hurt or to criticize, but does land in that way. So even systems where people might say things like, oh, I really wish you hadn't done that, or why'd you do that, in more of an exasperated voice, that may not be as obviously critical to a child, but upon reflection, we really see, oh, I was constantly getting the message that I was doing something wrong because I was being questioned for why I did things, or my parents were rolling their eyes at me or seeming so exasperated and and so I think it's important to consider that criticism can be very abusive and can look like name calling and disparagement and humiliation and it can also operate in some of these more subtle ways that we don't necessarily even recognize as critical at the time even registering caregiver or sibling or other family member disappointment in us that is something that can feel very very critical even if they aren't necessarily trying to criticize us and I think also there can be criticism in the sense of not feeling like we are well mirrored so we are very fearful or, or anxious about something and someone says, oh, there's no reason to be anxious. I believe in you. But if you are in a place where you are feeling really anxious and you don't believe in yourself and that doesn't get mirrored back to you in a way that reflects your reality, that can be experienced as critical and invalidating. So I think it's important to consider some of the nuances that can exist within this dynamic of high criticism. So one tendency that can emerge from high criticism is an overachiever tendency. So this can be helpful in the sense that it can create a lot of ambition, willingness to work hard, and a focus on achievement. On the flip side, it can be unhelpful because people who have this overachiever tendency can Tend to overfill their schedule to feel more comfortable with a lot of action and less and be less comfortable with downtime. And so, very full schedules can result from this in a way that can lead to burnout and can make it hard to rest or to be still. It can also result in perfectionistic tendencies. It can be difficult to then tolerate imperfection both in ourselves and other people which is a challenge because we are imperfect and we can often overvalue extra Affirmation and praise. With this overachieving tendency, we can look outward for feedback about our worth. We can define metrics of worth externally rather than from within and be driven by that external reinforcement or lack thereof rather than from an inner voice or an inner drive. We can also have low self worth and tie our worth to achievements, which is very fragile because we're not always successful. That's just the nature of of human nature. We sometimes might even seek out criticism without necessarily being that aware of it. So it's not that we explicitly think to ourselves, I'm going to seek out a relationship or a supervisor or a mentor that is going to be highly critical. But we might find ourselves more comfortable with that level of criticism because we're used to it. And even though it's harmful, it feels more comfortable. We also might not trust relationships in which people are not critical. So when there is a low criticism, we can be skeptical. We can wonder, does this person really love us? And so there can be some insecurity that develops when criticism isn't present. So some questions to consider include... What is your relationship to criticism? Do you tend to avoid it? Do you find some comfort and reassurance in it because you view it as a mode for helping you grow? And what is your relationship to criticism of yourself? To what extent are you highly critical of yourself? How easily do you recover from criticism from other people? If you have been criticized a lot as a child, you may be more sensitive to criticism or you may be more hardened to it. When you make mistakes or other people in your life make mistakes, what is your emotional response? Do you have a tendency towards a specific type of emotion? Is it anger? Shame? Do you tend to respond with a lot of judgment? Are you able to modulate the amount of effort or energy you put into tasks or do you have a tendency to overperform to have a hard time giving less than 100% or do you have a tendency to to underperform and have a hard time really pushing yourself to meet challenges and how do you measure your worth is it more external is it more internally driven is it some kind of combination to what extent do you tie your worth to your performance or your pro- productivity or to external affirmation and responses and feedback And do you find that criticism is a theme in your relationships? Do you tend to find yourself in relationships with people, romantically, platonically, who are really judgmental? And when people are critical of you, are you skeptical? Or excuse me, when people are not critical of you, are you skeptical? Do you have a hard time trusting that relationship? So is criticism for you in some way tied to an expression of love? Highly critical family systems can also result in a bit of a warrior or what I call a revolutionary kind of tendency. So this kind of... Tendency can help us separate from the criticism in that family system. It can help us feel a sense of control and autonomy. That we're rejecting that level of criticism. We're not participating in it. We are going to channel that criticism that we received into making positive changes in the world whether it be within the family system itself and trying to change that family system to a less critical family system or focusing on change outside of that family system. Many people who have this warrior revolutionary tendency can fill a role in the family as the family scapegoat they're reviewed as the rebellious one and the family often fixates on that person as the the black sheep or the outsider and that can be a part of this tendency as well so some aspects of this tendency that are helpful is that this can help uh this tendency can help us be nonconformist to challenge the status quo. Who who change systems that are harmful? It can create grit and persistence. It can create a sense of being driven by an internal mission, a, an ability to set and meet goals. There can be a pride and a drive towards meeting challenges. And when we are met with obstacles, we can try harder because we're used to being met with resistance in our past and and many people who have this kind of warrior or revolutionary kind of tendency enjoy fighting on behalf of other people i don't mean necessarily in a violent way but really being advocates and spearheading crusades and really dedicating themselves to causes and sticking up for others On the downside, with this kind of tendency, it can be hard when we're not in positions of power or we can have a hard time responding effectively to figures of authority. Sometimes we can have a hard time with consistency or structure because we're used to that tumultuousness of challenging the status quo we can also burn out because we're pushing all the time we're trying to change systems we're fighters we our identity is tied to that sense of nonconformity which at times can be I- isolating because there can be a comfort in feeling on the outside even if it's in a scapegoat kind of way um because we're used to that and so there can be a a sort of isolation, a loneliness, a lack of connection. So some questions to consider include what is your relationship to authority figures? How do you tend to respond when you're not in a position of power or you're not able to direct the flow of change or of what happens? How comfortable are you with uncertainty and lack of control? Do you have a tendency to micromanage or control other people's actions? Or even their impressions of you? What they think of you? Do you have a hard time separating, changing your mind with giving up? Do you feel as though unless you fight hard all the time and are working all the time towards change and revolution that you are giving your, you're giving up or that's lazy. Is there judgment there? Do you feel there is a sense of balance in your life? Do you tend to resist structure and schedules and rhythms and consistency? Are you more comfortable with a certain level of, of unpredictability? How often do you feel burned out? How well are you able to balance persistence and advocating for change with rest? And do you have causes that you believe in in passionately? And if so, how do you care for yourself while also dedicating yourself to those causes? And a final tendency I want to highlight related to highly critical family systems, which again, this is not an exhaustive list, but I just want to lift up some of the most common patterns that I see people grappling with, whether it's myself or my clients or loved ones, is a self-invalidating tendency. A tendency towards low self-worth, low self-esteem, low self-confidence, because we have internalized this criticism. Sabine Celesi refers to this as the inner committee, the inner criticism committee. So we sort of inherit that criticism, so to speak. So this may be a hard one to see how this pattern can be helpful, yet there is a an element of utility and survival to an internalization of criticism and having highly self-critical tendencies. So If we feel as though our loved ones in our families of origin are correct in their criticism of us, we don't need to face the fact that these are people who are supposed to love us and protect us and be there for us unconditionally we don't have to contend with the fact that they are actually causing us harm. So if we believe their criticism and internalize it without challenging it, it can allow us to maintain our relationships with these people who are responsible for meeting certain needs for us. So again, this isn't necessarily something that is happening on a conscious level, But it does allow us to not feel as betrayed by them, not as hurt by them because we view ourselves as the problem rather than them. So of course this is unhelpful because when we internalize this inner critic committee, we can be very harsh with ourselves, we can have low value, we can be wracked with self-doubt, we can be very prone to shame and judgment, we can have a hard time being vulnerable with other people because we have internalized this criticism so much that we don't feel worthy, we don't feel capable, and so we don't take risks and maybe we're very depressed and lethargic and amotivated. So some questions to consider include, to what extent are you harsh and judgmental towards yourself? Do you love yourself? Are you able to like who you are and not just the parts of you that other people like or that you feel proud of, but all parts of yourself, even the parts that you feel insecure about? Are you able to still love yourself, not in spite of them, but loving yourself for for who you are with all of these components? Do you tend to justify or excuse other people when they harm you? And when you are criticized, do you automatically assume that that criticism is correct? Or do you question the credibility of that criticism? Do you consider the source of the criticism? And, And to what extent do you thoughtfully consider it as opposed to defaulting to the assumption that it's accurate and true. The next set of family dynamics I want to lift up is related to emotions. So many of us have grown up in family systems where there is more of an inhibited relationship to emotions. There may be a lack of physical touch, a lack of physical expressions of affection. There may be more of an emphasis on internal processing or experiencing of emotion rather than that happening in a relational way. There may be low intensity of emotions that are expressed or perhaps emotions aren't really displayed at all and are even hidden or suppressed even when there is significant grief or trauma. If we also have an inhibited way of experiencing emotions when we grow up in this kind of system it can be protective especially if expression of emotions was punished or ridiculed or could lead to an unsafe situation emotionally or physically on the other hand, it can be unhelpful because an inhibited relationship to emotions can lead us to be less aware of our emotions. It can lead us to feel as though our emotions are wrong. It can make it difficult to communicate our emotions. We can inhibit grief. We can inhibit our processing of painful Emotions as well as our experience of joy and the richness of of life. So we can feel a tendency towards suppressing all emotions, not just difficult ones. We can also have a tendency to withdraw or disconnect or detach from others and maybe even inhibit the importance of intuition. So some questions to consider include, do you have a hard time knowing how you feel? Were you ever criticized, judged, or invalidated for your feelings growing up or their intensity or how you expressed them? Were you discouraged from showing or experiencing emotion? Was it judged? Was it viewed as weak to experience or express emotion? Were certain emotions considered to be more valid than others or more or less valuable to share? Did you get certain messages about the value of listening to emotions or allowing emotions to guide decision-making? Do you feel you have an extensive emotional vocabulary? Do you have a knowledge of how emotions feel and live in your body? Do you feel connected to a sense of intuitive knowing or inner wisdom? And and do you feel as though you can express emotions in different ways through physical touch and expressions of affection, through creative expression, through verbal means? On the other end of the spectrum we have family systems that are very emotive so highly expressive when it comes to emotions this could be system this could include systems in which there is a high charge around emotions and in which more intense displays of affection or expressions of emotion are highly rewarded or praised and perhaps these systems also emphasize the importance of talking about emotions to process situations in the context of relationships or conversation. So this kind of style can be really helpful because it can lead us to be more effective in articulating our feelings to others. It can allow us to use emotional experiencing, emotional processing, and expression as a form of catharsis. It can be unhelpful in that we can escalate quickly in emotional intensity if that is what it took to get our needs met. So if we're in a very expressive and emotive family system, sometimes we have to up the ante to get our emotions noticed because we're already operating at a very high baseline of emotional expression. And so that is something that can get reinforced where we feel as though we need to express emotions at a very high level in order to feel heard, and recognized. We can also sometimes dominate or overpower in relationships with people who have a softer style of expressing or experiencing their emotions and If we grow up in systems that are highly expressive, but that is counter to our natural tendency, if we don't fit into that, if we are more shy or even tempered or even keeled, we can feel like an outsider and like something is wrong with us because there is a poor fit between our natural tendency and what is normative in that family system. So some questions to consider include how do you tend to express emotions? Is it through words, through movement, through art? What kinds of emotions in your family of origin were expressed and how were they expressed and in what contexts and how were the other members of your family Responding to those different emotions and their expressions. Were certain emotions and their expressions valued or attended to more or less than others? Do you find that you tend to exaggerate your emotional experiences in order to feel heard? Do you feel badly when you're not able to demonstrate emotion outwardly or process externally? Do you tend to seek out other people in your life who are external processors? And is it difficult to negotiate relationships in which someone else's style doesn't match yours in terms of external processing and being able to articulate and express emotion? Do you have patience for people who are not able to articulate in the same kind of way? And do you tend to experience emotion more individually, in solitude, intrapersonally, or more interpersonally? The next dynamic I want to lift up is related to family systems in which caregivers were absent. Whether because they were very distracted, they worked a lot, were maybe very self-focused, or even neglectful in a way that was very traumatic. So in these kinds of family systems, we can develop a tendency towards caregiving. So we can Tend towards taking control in situations, caring for others, being very considerate of other people, checking in with them, making sure they're okay. And we can develop an acute sensitivity and awareness of other people's needs and emotions and sometimes can recognize what they are feeling before they do because this sensitivity is honed and valued and reinforced in this kind of system. So of course this can be helpful because it can lead to a nurturing and compassionate and inclusive style in which we're very considerate of others and sensitive to their needs. However, it can also lead us to have more of an external versus an internal focus. We can be so vigilant to other people's emotions that we don't really consider our own. We can also have a hard time with situations in which other people don't need our help. So this kind of pattern can create a need to be needed and we can overly value or, or tie our worth to our ability to take care of others. And when we're not able to do that, that can be really difficult to tolerate and we can feel very badly as a result. So some questions to consider. In moments of stress or crisis, do you tend to take charge, to lead and problem solve and take care of the situation? Do you find yourself being very sensitive to other people's needs? Do you often pick up on nonverbal cues and signs and subtleties that other people may not notice? Do you take joy in serving others? Do you find that you often overextend for others or focus more on other people than yourself? Do you prioritize other people's needs first? Do you find that you tend to other people before you tend to your own needs when it comes to self-care or emotional processing or other kinds of needs? And do you base your worth on your ability to nurture others? If you're not able to care for someone or if someone is not willing to receive your help, does that feel very destabilizing? Do you tend to feel hurt by that and take it very personal on a deep level? This kind of family system can also lead to a tendency towards nurturance seeking. And this can be helpful in that it facilitates connection with others. We can be very effective initiators in relationships. We can be very committed to prioritizing connection and investing in maintaining relationships. And on the flip side, we can become overly reliant on relationships for our sense of self, for our self-esteem and our worth. We can become very dependent on other people's opinions and we can use those opinions to guide our decision making more than that process coming from within. We can also find it challenging to do things on our own or have difficulty tolerating When people have a different opinion than ours and that can feel very hurtful and hard and because we can rely on other people for stability and decisions and self-worth, it can be difficult to know how to self-soothe, how to give ourselves nurturance because we so often have tried to seek that nurturance outside of us. So when we are really deprived of presence and attention growing up, it can lead us to be very hungry for that and to seek it out throughout our lives. So some questions to consider. Do you tend to find yourself in very intense relationships or in many relationships almost like relationship overload. There are so many relationships in your life that it can be hard to balance them all. Do you find it difficult to end relationships that don't serve you or to address what isn't working in relationships? Do you find yourself staying in relationships for longer than might have been ideal? Do you find yourself able to make decisions without consulting with others Do you find it difficult to justify or feel grounded in your decision making if other people agree? And are you able to be independent from other people? Do you find yourself really gravitating towards time with other people over alone time? Is it hard for you to be bored? Is it hard for you to be alone? And are you able to identify your own needs and then meet those needs from within and self-soothe and self-nurture? Another theme I want to highlight is related to grief and stress. So many of us grew up in systems where there was significant grief or stress, whether it was more acute, whether it was more chronic. This could be extreme poverty or difficulty with getting financial needs met or basic needs for consistent shelter, clothing, food, growing up in single-parent households, death of family members. It could be mental health challenges and one or more family members, and also it could involve dealing with ongoing discrimination or oppression. So one kind of pattern that can emerge from systems in which there is grief and stress is a tendency towards optimism and lightheartedness and a sense of humor. So of course this can be helpful in that the ability to find joy in life, even in the context of significant grief and stress, is really powerful. It can be a powerful antidote to some of that grief and stress and it can allow us to be resilient and to recognize that even in the midst of grief and stress there is room and space to be held for joy People with this tendency can also have a certain positivity and optimism even when dealing with difficult situations. They can have a basic trust that things are going to be okay even if they are extremely challenging. They can really stay committed to persistence and and to approaching life with a certain level of lightheartedness and love and compassion this can also lead to some harmful tendencies and that this optimism and lightheartedness can result in a kind of toxic positivity where it's not okay to acknowledge hardship and it, it there is a tendency towards always trying to reframe or often trying to reframe a situation in a more positive light in a way that can bypass emotions and not validate the difficult emotions that exist it can also make it difficult to tolerate and stay with painful emotions and sometimes lead us to focus so much on what is good in our lives that we overlook what isn't working whether it's in a relationship or a professional situation or or something else entirely and when we are having this sort of positivity bias and overlooking things that are not serving us or maybe are even harming us it can also lead us to not hold ourselves accountable to what isn't working well. We can lose the incentive or motivation to make a change because we're, re- we're not recognizing there's a problem in the first place. We can also be overly forgiving of other people in a way that they then take advantage because of this reliance on optimism and positivity. So some questions to consider. How much do you value joy? How much pleasure do you derive from making other people laugh, from helping people look on the bright side, from working towards a more positive outlook, or reframing difficult situations into more positive ones? Has your sense of humor or this positive outlook ever caused problems in your life, in your relationship, in your profession, profession, in other aspects of your identity? Do you feel able to honor painful emotions in your life just as much as you are able to honor more lighthearted or joyful emotions and do you tend to overemphasize gratitude or a positive outlook in a way that invalidates your own pain doesn't recognize or honor your own pain or do you, have you gotten feedback from others that you haven't really honored or validated their pain or challenges Growing up with a lot of grief and stress can also lead to a more logical, practical, somber, and serious tendency. So this is the other end of the spectrum. So this is helpful in that people who are very logical and practical and sincere can be really great problem solvers and really find a lot of pride in practicality and value doing what works and and being able to be very dependable and trustworthy and reliable. And on the flip side, this tendency can be unhelpful when it leads us to not engage in dreams or activities in order to avoid disappointment. We may tend to gravitate towards situations in which we are in control and maybe not take risks. We may be hesitant to to take risks because we feel as though it, it's not practical it's not logical we may hesitate to have fun to indulge we may downplay the importance of of joy and livelihood and thriving so I invite you to consider what is your relationship to joy can you identify things that truly bring you a sense of joy do you remember the last time you laughed so hard that your belly ached and it was a bit hard to breathe? How, how able are you to fully experience joy? Do you tend to judge joy as indulgent or frivolous? Do you lead with your head more than your heart? Do you tap into logic more than emotions when making decisions rather than giving them equal weight? And do you have a hard time when there isn't a plan or structure? And when you find that someone isn't being practical, is that hard to tolerate? Is that hard for you to empathize with? Is that hard for you to to value and to see the utility in? So do you minimize the importance of intuition and is connecting to intuition and your emotional intuitive sense something that you feel able to do and that and is it something that you think even has value? The next set of dynamics I want to bring up is related to family secrets or secrets in which an element of betrayal was present. So family secrets could be around, of course, sexual abuse and other kinds of abuse. It could be not sharing with other people that there is addiction or mental health struggles in the family. It could also be betrayal in the form of infidelity that happens in the family or a level of dishonesty or disloyalty. There could be secrets related to unhappiness in a marriage. So anything in that camp of betrayal or secrecy. So these kinds of systems can lead to a tendency of secret keeping. So the the utility here is that when we can keep secrets, other people view us as loyal and trustworthy. We can be very effective confidants. On the flip side, when we've grown up with this message that certain things cannot be revealed, that can induce a sense of shame. It can induce a sense of needing to not be vulnerable, of emphasizing the importance of hiding, feeling as though certain behaviors or parts of us can't be shared otherwise there will be a negative consequence and that can increase anxiety and fear about people knowing who we truly are or what is going on behind closed doors. We can also become really sensitive to our perception that we are being lied to that someone isn't being fully transparent or dishonest about or or isn't being fully honest with us and it can also lead us to be hyper vigilant to signs of dishonesty. And when someone does actually lie to us or we feel exaggerate something or misrepresent something that can really hit home hard and tie into a very deep core wound. Families with a lot of secrets and betrayal can also lead us to a sense of being an imposter and being inauthentic. And so that can be a negative consequence as well. So I invite you to consider what is your relationship to honesty? Is it something that you highly value? Something that you minimize the importance of? To what extent do you prioritize honesty in your relationship with other people? Is it hard to acknowledge to yourself things that bring up shame and insecurity or fear? And is it hard to acknowledge that to other people? And what is it like for you when you find out that someone has not been fully honest or transparent with you? What is the impact of that? Do you feel like you can truly be yourself without hiding and do you equate confrontation with disloyalty? Do you think of loyalty in, in a more narrow way that loyalty really means never disagreeing or bringing something to light or giving someone feedback on something that might be hard for them to acknowledge? And do you find it hard to seek support from others For fear of betraying someone else, when you share with a friend or therapist or loved one about something that is going on in your life that involves someone else, do you feel a lot of guilt? Does it feel like sharing that story, sharing about what's going on in your life is a form of betrayal? These kinds of family systems can also lead to a truth-telling tendency. So a tendency to call it like it is, and this can be really helpful because it can engender trust. When when we know that someone is willing and able to be honest and direct with us, it can enhance our ability to trust them because it is through that kind of honest feedback when it's given in an effective way that we can often grow. So the flip side is that sometimes when we grow up in, in a system where we feel like there is so much secrecy that we need to rail against that, We can be overly blunt. We can give advice and feedback when it's not solicited. We can be intolerant when it's hard for others to be candid or fully honest or transparent. So some questions to consider for you in terms of this truth-teller tendency that may have emerged for a very valid reason early on and may still persist in your life right now is, do you tend to ask for consent before you give feedback to someone? When you give feedback to other people, how able are you to attend to the relationship? How able are you to give that feedback in a way that promotes connection and promotes the quality of the relationship rather than interferes and leads to disconnection? Again, it's not like giving feedback is a bad thing in and of itself. It's more about reflecting on in which ways does the way that we give feedback and our tendency towards the provision of feedback serve us and get in our way. And does your delivery of feedback or the way in which you tell the truth, does it have a certain level of harshness or directness that doesn't always feel necessary or proportionate to the situation? Is it skillful? Is it effective? The last dynamic I want to lift up today is related to family systems in which there is a high level of crisis and chaos and unpredictability. So this could be family systems where there is a relentlessness of stressor after stressor. Maybe it's caused by financial instability that isn't the fault of the family system maybe it's due to abuse whether it's caregivers or other family members perpetrating a- abuse maybe it's a history of abuse in caregivers that doesn't necessarily get perpetrated in the f- uh, perpetuated in the form of abuse but does lead to a certain level of chaos and crisis and unpredictability because that trauma in the caregiver hasn't fully been processed or addressed there could be addiction mental health health, health issues, gambling, financial instability, parents who are very temperamental and unpredictable. So maybe very close other times, maybe very cold and detached other times. So there's a certain level of unpredictability of nurturance and of presence of of the parent or caregiver for whatever reason. So this kind of high crisis, chaos, unpredictability dynamic can lead to a thrill-seeking tendency. So when we grow up in this kind of system, we can feel more comfortable in chaos and disorganization. And so this can be helpful in that it can lead to a lot of adventurousness. We can do very well in high-stress environments. We can have developed skills in being very calm in crisis and very up for novelty and exploration, which leads us to be very fun-spirited. The unhelpful side is that because of this comfort in chaos and novelty and and crisis, we may tend to seek out thrills in ways that are risky, whether it's extreme physical activities or substances or some other means. We may have difficulty with boredom. We may be uncomfortable with having schedules or regular sleep and wake times. We may have a hard time in relationships that aren't conflictual. There are certainly people who have a hard time being sexually intimate or emotionally intimate unless there is high conflict and a high frequency of fighting. And sometimes we can begin to confuse chaos and crisis with passion and love and equate chaos and crisis with passion and love. And so when chaos and crisis is absent, we can have a hard time feeling passion and love both towards others and from others. So some questions to consider. Do you perform best under pressure? Do you tend to procrastinate? Sometimes procrastination can create a bit of an adrenaline rush that is related to high sensation seeking and thrill seeking. Are you often late? Do you often play sort of a brinksmanship with time? Do you notice that you tend to push people's buttons and test boundaries in relationships even without intentionally doing so or meaning to do so? In retrospect, you often say, huh, I wonder if I did that to see what what they would do or if they would stick around. Do you enjoy activities that produce an adrenaline rush? Are there times where you think you have equated chaos and crisis with passion and love? Have you often picked fights with other people for the sake of doing so to test out their love for you? And is it hard for you to feel a sense of love and passion or intensity of other emotions in the absence of conflict? Another way in which this kind of dynamic can play out is in a more solitude-seeking tendency. So if we grow up in an environment with a lot of chaos and crisis and unpredictability, we may then respond by wanting low crisis, low chaos, lots of predictability, and maybe that means lots of solitude and stillness. So this is helpful in that we can be very independent, we can be comfortable being alone, and we can find restoration and relaxation and quiet and stillness and really crave it. On the other hand, this tendency can be unhelpful if it leads us to withdraw and isolate and to not trust that others will be there for support. So if we've grown up without that level of predictability and stability, it can be hard to trust that that is something that exists because we haven't experienced it. We can be overly reliant on ourselves. We can have internalized this message that we need to do things alone, that people aren't going to be there for us, we don't have anyone else to rely on, which can lead to ambivalence in relationships or difficulty being vulnerability vulnerable in relationships and we can also have difficulty with sensory overload which again isn't necessarily a bad thing it's just something that we might need to to manage is when we are in intense environments it may affect us more intensively than for other people so, some questions to consider. Do you feel overly reliant on stability and structure? And do you tend towards rigidity and organization? And is it hard for you to tolerate when others are not as structured or organized? When there is a stressful or highly stimulating situation, do you tend to become frozen or do you have difficulty processing what is happening or responding to the situation? Do you have multiple circles of support that you can rely on in times of need for assistance? How easy is it for you to truly open up to other people, to have relationships that go beyond a surface level? And do you feel able to ask for and receive help from other people and different kinds of help? So for some of us, it may be easier to ask for a ride somewhere or help with childcare or someone to stay with us after a doctor's appointment or medical procedure but it can be challenging to to call someone when we're crying or to show a deeper level of vulnerability so those are some some possibilities to consider as we wind down and work towards wrapping up, I want to reiterate that one of my main intentions in having this conversation today is to highlight our shared humanity, that none of us is immune to the effects of our families of origin and that we all have certain patterns or tendencies that emerged were reinforced by these family systems because they served an important function or purpose. There may be certain ways in which they are no longer are adaptive or helpful, but at one point they did serve an important function or purpose. And when we can recognize why they existed, how they emerged, that level of understanding can help us have more self-compassion for ourselves. And it is with that foundation of self-compassion that we are more readily able to shapeshift and transform and make changes in our lives. And the examples that I've shared today related to family dynamics and the kinds of understandable patterns or tendencies that might arise in the face of these dynamics are intended to support you in further exploration and curiosity about the current patterns in your life. The goal is not for you to develop an exhaustive list of all of the ways in which you were affected by your Families of origin, but rather to equip you with a process of self reflection so that you can move from a place of autopilot driven by conditioning and prior learning to intentional. Choice. So these categories of conflict resolution, criticism, emotions and their expression, level of nurturance, grief and stress, family secrets, crisis and chaos are meant to be a springboard for you to consider. What are the patterns in my life right now that serve me, that don't serve me, and where do they come from? Where are those early roots, and how can I continue to be aware of how I am shaped and influenced by my past? And how can I take ownership over the trajectory of my life and decide what I want to maintain and carry forward? And how do I want to begin to let go of what no longer serves me or continue to let go of what? no longer serves me. So I hope that these examples give you a foundation from which to foster more curiosity and self-reflection and empowerment so that you can move forward in choice rather than reactivity and out of habit and conditioning. So again thank you so much for joining me and I really look forward to you joining me again next time. Thank you for listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.